children ages four to grade five. If you've not already done so, you're welcome to go to the basement for Children's Church. Let us pray together. Oh God, we need your help in our eyes, in our hearts, in our minds, so that we might more fully see you and know you as you really are. And so this morning we ask for a fresh anointing upon our whole, by your Holy Spirit upon our congregation so that that might be so. And we pray all this through Christ, the one who has perfectly imaged you. Amen. If you were with us last Sunday, you'll remember that Stephanie Kaufman stood up. And Stephanie, are you here this morning? There you are. You stood up over there, perhaps. And uh, shared with our congregation the wonderful news that uh, Dale and Stephanie had become new grandparents. And uh, I have to tell you, this last Friday, I had the special joy of going to visit Justin and Ashley and uh, seeing their little Ethan for the very first time. He's doing well, and uh, he's a joy to see. I think one of the other special things that... uh, is especially wonderful about being in a church community together is that we get to see all these little Ethans and all the other children slowly grow up and uh, we get to watch them and see all the wonderful ways that they begin to resemble their parents. Maybe in the way that they talk, in the way that they laugh or point or gesture. In the same way that all of us grow up beginning to resemble our parents in one way or another, what if the images for God that we carry through life, who we see God as, what if these images also deeply shape who we end up becoming? For example, if we imagine God, when we see God in our mind's eye, if we see a God who is vengeful and violent, as many Christians and Muslims and Jews do in our world, won't our lives tend to mirror these same characteristics? If we see God as a stern taskmaster and a divine scorekeeper who gives up on people and cuts them off for all of eternity, won't we be more likely to be able to harm or to kill others ourselves? Now, in contrast, what if God is like a good shepherd? who goes to the ends of the earth to find that one last sheep. 
What if God is like a loving mother who so delights in us that she throws a party just as a woman who has found that one last lost coin? Or what if God is like a faithful father who patiently waits for our return from a far country and then runs out to embrace us? Of course, you all know that I didn't make up these stories. They all come from Jesus, don't they? They all come from that world-transforming 15th chapter of Luke. And, you know, the interesting thing is that those three stories are only in the 15th chapter of Luke. They're not in any of the other Gospels. And, friends, can you imagine your faith without these three stories? I can't. Because they have so profoundly reshaped my own understanding and perception of God. Friends, what if a crucial part of Jesus' saving work is to come transform our distorted images of God? And what if, just what if, as our images for God are transformed, what if we are transformed as well? Our gospel reading today begins with a steady stream of tax collectors and broken people and obvious sinners. And this is very important. In Jesus' eyes, we're all sinners, but some are more obvious than others. And these obvious sinners happily gather in his presence to hear his preaching and teaching. And of course, in this story, this sets off the religious leaders, of whom I am one, (laughs) grumbling loudly about the terrible company that Jesus keeps. Hey, this guy welcomes sinners, and worst of all, he even eats with them, which in Jewish culture was the ultimate form of hospitality and acceptance. And how does Jesus respond? Much like Moses, we heard Moses respond last week with a story. And actually, Jesus doesn't just respond with one story. He answers with three. And notice how each one of these stories focuses not on the lack of compassion and hospitality of these religious leaders, but on the distorted images of God that are causing their hardness of heart. Which of you, Jesus says in verse 3, wouldn't leave behind your flock of 99 to go seek after that one sheep that is lost? And having found it, wouldn't you lay it up on your shoulders, take it home, and then throw a big party for all your friends and your family members? Well, God would. 
This is what God is like. Verse 8. Which of you, like the woman of a house, wouldn't turn your place upside down and turn on all the lights after losing a coin? And after finally finding it, wouldn't you call all your friends and your family members to come and celebrate with you? Well, God would. This is what God is like. In these stories, Jesus is inviting us to be amazed by God's grace. To see God's unbounded joy when the lost are found. Each one of these stories also, by the way, about a shepherd and about a woman happen to have lead characters playing God who are at the very margins of Jewish society. You see, Jesus seems to be trying to tell us that there is no one outside the circle of God's care and concern. No one with this God will ever be lost who can be saved. Jesus shows us a God who loves to throw heavenly parties when the lost are found and finally brought home. This is what God is like. These stories, dear friends, are about the faithful, persistent, and undying love of God. And the Hebrew word for this in the Hebrew scriptures for this kind of covenantal love is chesed. And I'd like for us to say that together because we're going to say that a lot in the years to come. Chesed. Can you say that? Now you have to clear your throat a bit. Chesed. Yeah, chesed. My uh, prof in... Willard Swartley said that the Old Testament has a word that describes God's core character and his chesed, and the, the New Testament, it's grace and agape. Chesed love. And of course, we heard in our call to worship today that refrain that is repeated. 26 times in Psalm 136, God's steadfast love endures forever. Even if you've lost your way, even if you're hiding yourself out in some dark corner, even if you've run to some faraway land, God's steadfast love for you endures forever. Thanks to Jesus, we know this is what God is like. In our other reading this morning from 1 Timothy, Paul makes himself exhibit A for this God who is always searching and seeking after people in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, he says, of whom I am the foremost. Paul always has to be number one in everything. 
<laughs> even if it means being number one in the category of greatest sinner. Though he says that he was once a blasphemer, once a persecutor of the followers of Jesus, once a man of violence, his mystical encounters with Jesus on the road to Damascus, out there in the deserts of Arabia, help him to experience like never before the breadth and the width and the height and the depth of God's love for him. And notice how God beautifully transforms Paul. Not by destroying his personality, but by redirecting it in life-giving ways. God takes Paul's shortcomings and deficiencies, just as God takes our deficiencies and shortcomings and transforms them into unexpected gifts and strengths. This is very important. Paul's zeal for hunting down and killing Christians is transformed into a new kind of zeal. A zeal for connecting all people with God, especially Gentiles. With Paul and with us, God never wastes anything. So, dear friends, how is God's transformation happening in your life? What earlier in your life might have seen as a terrible deficiency or a shortcoming, how might God be, or a loss, be transformed into some way of ministering to others in your unique way? The beautiful thing about this spiritual journey that we're on together is that the more we begin to resemble Jesus, who perfectly images God for us, the more each of us finally becomes who we really are. Become like Jesus and become uniquely yourself. A week ago, one of you told me we were across town in the parking lot of the uh, James Street Mennonite Church. One of you told me a story about sharing with one of your children about how your core images of God have been changing over the years. And so this prompted me in my weekly email to you called Preparing Our Hearts for Worship to invite all of us as well to reflect on our own earliest and deepest images of God. As a child, as a child, who shaped your images of God most profoundly? A parent? A teacher? church congregation, a grandparent? Were your images of God shaped for good or for ill? 
And how have your images for God been changing and transforming over the years? You know, I have to confess to you this morning that though I love nothing more than to preach about the amazing grace of God, when it really comes down to it, I realize that not all of my own images for God are rooted in God's graciousness. It's still a lot easier for me to assume that God frowns and scowls on all the ways that I still don't come close to resembling Jesus than smiling on some of the small ways that I actually do. How about you? There's a simple exercise, a spiritual exercise, that I found especially helpful in my own spiritual journey, and I'd like to share it with you now this morning. I invite all of you to close your eyes. Don't fall asleep. And I want you to imagine gathering together, getting together every single person you've met in your whole life in one big hall. Do you see them all? (laughs) There are hundreds. Family members, classmates, neighbors, church friends, and work colleagues. Now, among all of these hundreds among hundreds, who are the three people who've loved you most completely and most unconditionally? Who are these three? Perhaps who loved you when you felt like you least deserved it. You can open your eyes now. I wish we had the time to hear who your three are. And I invite you to share with your spouse or your friend here in this congregation who those three people are for you. My three are my Grandma Nickel, who always managed to see the good in me in spite of myself. Atlee Beachy, a Goshen College prof whom some of you perhaps know, whose Christ-likeness began to draw Danette and, and me back toward God and the church. And Dale Shum, a church leader in what was then Mennonite Board of Missions, who took a huge risk on first sending Danette and me to serve in China. Now, with your three people in mind, let me tell you this wonderful news. Not only does God love you as much as these three people, God loves you infinitely and immeasurably more than these three. And we know this because Jesus has shown that this is what God is like. And so because of this, I believe that a crucial part of Jesus' saving work in our world was to come and heal our distorted images of God, 
to show us who God really is. And as our images for God are transformed, so are we. And this has a missional purpose. We are transformed so that we then can become for others that one person in a thousand who helps someone else to believe that they are infinitely and immeasurably loved by God. Let's now sing together Amazing Grace. And as we sing it, I want us all to remember that when this hymn was written back in 1779, a wretch like me did not mean a vile and despicable person as it does today. A wretch meant a wanderer, an exile, a lost person needing to be found and brought home to God. Amen.